Hey, everybody. Love talking about my friends at Steel. That's S-T-I-H-L. SteelUSA.com. You see all of their products. SteelDealers.com. You find their locations around the country. There's more than 10,000, so there's one right around the corner. Order your product, and you can have it picked up You know, days later and get going. By the way, now's a wonderful time. Spring is not that far away to do some shopping because they have a lot of deals going. They have uh, money-saving deals on on trimmers, on blowers, on mowers. And I came across one and it it struck a chord with me because I was on one of these at their warehouse about a year or so ago, and that is the Zero Turn Mower. 0% financing available currently on the Zero Turn Mowers. So I'm driving around their warehouse on the Zero Turn Mower uh, pretending that I'm cutting a lawn. I cannot tell you how cool that thing was. It was remarkable. Really neat stuff. So as you know, Steel always has deals going. They have the best products on the market. Check them out right now. S-T-I-H-L, SteelUSA.com, SteelDealers.com. It's February. Springer's around the corner. You're going to save money. Go see them today. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, Fox Sports Analyst and host from 104.3 The Fan, Mark Schlereth, joins Drew to react to Super Bowl 58. That first half, I thought it was complete and total domination by San Francisco. I thought they dominated the game everywhere except on the scoreboard. And at halftime, I was like, this is not going well. Plus, Mark's reaction to the antics of Travis Kelsey and the transfer portal in college football. You know, we're creating a generation of athletes that, that are basically, you know, when the going gets tough, I pack up my bag and jump in the transfer portal. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. First and goal. Mahomes flings it. It's there! Hartman! Jackpot! Kansas City! I don't think many would have predicted it earlier in the season when the Kansas City Chiefs were struggling, but they have gone back to back. I don't know how many people would have predicted it after the Broncos finally broke their losing streak against the Chiefs, but the Chiefs are indeed Super Bowl champs. It didn't look that way in the first half when the Niners were dominant other than putting up uh, a number of points on the scoreboard, and ultimately that was their undoing. It went from, and I said this on social media, kind of somewhat of a dull game the first half to an extraordinarily exciting game, and what a tremendous finish. Uh, overtime in the Super Bowl for just the second time. New set of rules, which that was one of the storylines afterward. The Chiefs grasped the new set of rules. They were well-versed in the new set of rules, and apparently the 49ers were not. Now, I don't look at this as an indictment of, of uh, Kyle Shanahan. I think Kyle Shanahan's a hell of a football coach. I mean, uh, he's won a lot of big games to get to the big dance twice. They're going to be there uh, in ensuing years, I would think. Kyle Shanahan is one of the very, very best coaches uh, in football. He's getting a lot of criticism for the overtime in winning the toss and not opting to go second to know what you need to either tie the football game or win the football game. And I understand that. But for them, the game was probably lost more earlier on in that dominant first half when they didn't take full advantage of what they were doing on the football field. And certainly, you know, on that opening possession, the rare fumble from Christian McCaffrey hurt. 
um, and and not being able to convert again some of those drives into more points than just ten in the first half. But it, was, it turned out to be a great football game, and you had a little bit of drama. You had the you know Kelsey bumping Andy Reid. We'll get into that a little bit uh, later on with Mark Schlereth, and um, but but overall. It turned into a great entertainment, and it was the most watched Super Bowl, the most watched event ever. I saw where there was over 200 million people in a country of, what, 330 million that at some point in time watched some of that game. It's remarkable. It's remarkable how big the Super Bowl is. It's remarkable how popular the NFL um, has been and continues to grow. And we've seen exponential uh, growth there. You know, other moments that stood out to me or other, I guess, thoughts in the aftermath. Patrick Mahomes, when it was just a couple of years ago, we were talking about Tampa Bay and Tom Brady in a new environment winning yet again. And he's the goat of goats. And I don't think this diminishes the accomplishments of Tom Brady, but really on the heels of him retiring, we have a guy that is generally regarded already as one of the two or three best quarterbacks in the history of the game, and he's only 28. And most people imagine that when all is said and done, you will anoint Patrick Mahomes as the number one quarterback ever. And again, that does not take away from the accomplishment for me uh, of Tom Brady. It just uh, further extols um, the virtues of Patrick Mahomes as a quarterback and, and how cool he is and how calm he is with the game on the line. In the biggest stage, he always rises to it. I mean, that fourth and one, I, w- I was nervous watching that play. I don't have a dog in the hunt. And they run an RPO, and he runs for whatever it was, 8, 9, 10 yards, and keeps the sticks moving. Um, he's he's a master. He He's tremendous. And earlier in the year when he was, you know, maybe taking some undue risks and turned it over a little bit, postseason, he had the one interception in the Super Bowl. And, and again, that's where San Francisco didn't take advantage early in the third quarter. Um, but other than that, he didn't throw a pick. He knows what time it is and he's phenomenal and travis kelsey is you know as good as we've ever seen at that position and we've seen some great ones over the last 25 years from tony gonzalez to antonio gates to gronkowski naturally uh, to a guy that um, made his came to fame it's a better way to put it here in denver and has become you know, huge in the media business, Shannon Sharp. Been some great tight ends over the last 25, 30 years. And at the top of the heap, got to be Travis Kelsey, right? Got to be Travis Kelsey. But that was fun. And it was a joy to watch uh, as it turned out. I wouldn't have said that, uh, as I mentioned, uh, in the first half. But um, 
It was really good stuff. Really good stuff. We're going to get right back to football in a moment with uh, with my buddy Mark Schlereth. Um, but I wanted to mention college basketball because we're getting closer to March Madness. I was watching Colorado State last night, and they'd won four in a row, including a victory at home against San Diego State, who was in the national championship game a year ago. They went out west, and I'm watching the end of the first half. They're up 14 at the break. They're also, I believe, 14-1 and one this year when they lead at halftime. They're 14, now be it against a very good team on the road. In the second half, I don't know if I've ever seen a team struggle the way they did and just completely fell apart. They end up losing going away. They shot three for 25. I mean, you could pull up from half court and fire 25 shots. You're probably going to hit four or five they were three for 25 in the second half they scored 11 points and ended up getting blown out i mean it was shocking now in the case of colorado state they're still in a good spot because they did yeoman work during the uh, non-conference season blowing out uh you know a top 10 team in creighton uh, they have, I believe, four quad one wins. They beat Washington. Um, you know, they they beat Colorado at home, 88-83. They beat Mississippi State. You know, they have some good home wins. Boise State, San Diego State, as I mentioned. I, I they're they're still in a good position. That was a shocking finish, though. Shocking finish. We'll see how they bounce back this weekend with Utah State coming to Moby Arena. I had Colorado last week on FS1. And uh, at times, it looked like they were going to blow at Arizona State. Arizona State, to their credit, hung around. But Colorado um, got a much-needed victory. At that point in time, they were still unbeaten at home. Then Arizona came to town. And Arizona, if you recall, won by 47 points down in Tucson. Colorado needs a signature win. Maybe a couple of them. It's hard, though, because the Pac-12 is not very good this year. Not at all. And it's swan song. So Arizona comes in. Colorado gets off to a quick start, and then it's all Arizona. And they end up winning by 20. So in two games, they've outscored the Buffs by 67. Now, in defense of Colorado, who went healthy, I think is without question a tournament caliber team and a good team and, and could be a dangerous team with a great player with K.J. Simpson. Um, I love Javon Hadley. Uh, obviously, Corey Williams is really talented. He's going to be one and done uh, at CU. They they have nice pieces. Uh, Tristan De Silva, really good player. But because they haven't played together consistently all year, they've had some moments But they're on the outside clearly looking in. And I don't know if there are enough schools left on their schedule that you can win enough and impress enough to make the tournament short of winning the Pac-12 tournament. And based on how they have played against Arizona, I don't see that happening. You know, they they have the West Coast schools, but again, the Pac-12 is down. So even if you were to win on the road and they've struggled on the road, as, as have many good teams this year in conference play, 
But even if you put together a run, I'm not sure it's going to be enough. And it's a shame because it's a really intriguing team. And when healthy, it's a good team. So that's kind of the state of the two uh, major programs uh, in the state of Colorado. And I did want to make uh, mention of that as we're getting closer to, um, you know, the the last uh, handful of of games in conference play and then the conference tournaments and uh, tournaments and then ultimately uh, what uh, March Madness looks like. So tough one for Colorado State, tough one for Colorado. Colorado State's still in a good position. Colorado right now, unfortunately, is not. Okay, back to football. A a lot to talk about with an old friend, a guy that you may listen to still. I hope you do uh, on the fan. I mean, he's been a fixture on the fan for years and years and years after an extraordinary football career, talking, of course, about Mark Schlereth. Um, But uh, Stink also has been doing games for years. Last bunch of years at Fox, um, he was a fixture at ESPN prior to that, as I think many of you know. And um, he's a former neighbor. Uh, we lived next to each other within a couple of houses of each other um, for about a half a dozen years when I had a really young family and his family was a little bit younger and uh, used to catch in the backyard his son Daniel uh, when Daniel was like 10, 12 years old and he had a really good arm then, such a good arm that years later he had become a first-round pick of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, uh, Stink is talented as he is in so many different areas, is an even better guy. Um and um, he's a he's a tremendous person, tremendous family guy, and he's always fun to visit with on a number of topics. So it'd been a while since he'd been on the podcast, and uh, we dig right in, and we got so long winded that we have to do it over two parts. So here's part one with uh, a guy you know well, and I'm sure you respect. You've got to Mark Schlereth. Stink, before we talk Super Bowl, which is a natural conversation here in the aftermath, um, is there any truth to the uh, the, that somehow you're going to resurrect Rock Hoover and and we're going to see you again on a soap opera in in the near future? No, there's absolutely no truth to that rumor. Uh, You know, my my big joke is that thing spent uh, that thing spent 72 years on air. It was it was uh, 20 years on radio. Before Guiding Life, that was the soap opera I was on. Guiding Life for 20 years on the radio before it went on a 50 year run on television. It took me two years of recurring roles on that soap <laughs> opera to get it canceled. <laughs> it was, they built over 72 years. I got canceled in two years. So yeah. that's uh, my, that's my acting career in a nutshell. Yeah. So basically, uh, everyone who is uh, on the ensemble within the ensemble cast um, has deleted you from their from their phone rolodex, correct? <laughs> Every one of them sees me on television, calling a game, and they're like, I mean, they're poking voodoo dolls at me right now. Like they they hate my guts. <laughs> well, you know what? That was uh, uh, you've had a lot of fun chapters, and I I would imagine, all seriousness, that had to be a pretty cool one those those couple of years. It was, you know, it's it's so funny because you'd roll in and he'd roll in and, oh, I have no idea. You know, I don't watch soap opera, so I have no idea about the storyline or what's going on. And and I'm not good. I don't know about you, Drew, but I'm horrible at memorizing lines. 
Mm-hmm. Like everything that we say and what we do for a living is extemporaneous. You know, whatever happens, you're just talking about it, right? And all yeah. of a sudden, I've got to memorize all these lines, and I'm like, well, I'm horrible at this. I'm no good at the memorization of lines. So that was always kind of tricky for me. But the coolest part of that is the connection I made with the people on that show that have been on there for 20, 30 years. And in, in you know, typical stink fashion, it wasn't necessarily the actors and actresses. It was the behind the scenes people that I connected with. Um, a couple of the makeup people, um, a couple of the, uh, the, the, the executive producer. I still talk to him all the time. Um, you know, so there was a, a guy named Joe in makeup. There was a guy with a last name Schlereth, as a matter of fact that was part of the set and he was on in, in the union on the set crew. And so we ended up digging, you know, digging through our history to see if we were related. Cause how many, I've only met a few Schlereth in my entire life. And so, you know, we, we just decided we were second cousins or something. We just left it at that uh, because neither of us was really going to do a lot of work trying to figure it out. But you know, connecting with those people is, is the funnest part of doing something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Did, would Lisa run lines with you? No, I would always, I would always get them. And so it would be like, I would get the line and then I would shoot down in the rental car from Bristol, Connecticut into New York city that night. I'd be the first guy up. So they make sure they shot all my scenes early in the morning. And then I would jump right back in the car and drive back to Bristol because I had to do NFL live in the afternoon. So it was one of those, they, they just totally accommodated my schedule, which was cool. But, uh, no, I, I just – and I never had a ton of lines, but uh, just enough to get myself in trouble. They, did they ever have to put up, like, uh, the, you know, the uh, the cheat boards that were slightly off camera that you could glance at? Yeah, no, we never did that either, but I did uh, have to stop down the shooting a couple of times because I forgot my line. So <laughs> there was a couple of those where they're like, hey, idiot, your line here is whatever it is, you know. So anyhow, that happened a couple of times, but it was all good. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Super Bowl, uh, you know, at halftime or near halftime, I'm looking at some of the guys I'm watching with, and I'm like, this game's rather dull. I mean, I appreciate good defense, but and it turned out to be a very entertaining Super Bowl. What was your take overall? Well, my first first off, you know, I'm a huge Niner fan simply because of Kyle Stanahan, who, you know, I've known since he was 12 years old. Christian McCaffrey, I've known since he was two years old. Obviously played with Eddie McCaffrey for a long time. Um, Anthony Lynn is on that staff. Brian Greasy is on that staff. Guys I played with as members of the Denver Broncos. Bobby Turner's on that staff. You know, John Lynch, I've been friends with forever. Uh, played in Pro Bowl with John Lynch. So, you know, you, you, you go through all those things and, you know, you're like, those are your guys. And so I was really, really rooting for him. That first half, I thought it was complete and total domination by San Francisco. Physically, I thought they dominated the game. Uh, time of possession-wise, I thought they dominated the game. I thought they dominated the game everywhere except on the scoreboard. And at halftime, I was like, this is not going well because they should have 20 points right now. It should be 20 to 3, and it's 10 to 3. And I was like, this is, this is not a good thing. And then, you come out in the third quarter, and this is where I really got nervous. You come out in the third quarter, you turn the Chiefs over. They have to fumble the very first play. They recover it. It's, you know, second down and 18. You stop them on third down. You intercept the ball. And I go, here we go. 
and then you go three, you go a, a straight three plays, three and out, all passes. And then you get the ball back, you get another defense stop, and you go three plays, all passes, three and out. And Kyle Shanahan was asked about it, you know, post game, and he said, well, it's hard to establish the run when you go three and out and three and out. And I thought to myself, it's really hard to establish the run when you don't run it, right? Like, you've got to run the ball there. And when that happened, I just felt like, I just felt like you're getting away from what you guys do well. And Drew, you've been involved in sports. You've played sports. You know, we both did our, our, our entire lives. You know, we've been involved in it in our entire lives. And I was always, I always believed in, I, if I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose doing what I do well. And, you know, my big thought process is never I'm going to try to out-trick my opponent. I'm going to try to out-execute and out-physical my opponent. And that's how I want to go about doing things. And I just felt like they got away right there. What they like? It almost was like, well, we did this and we dominated in the in the first half, and we are only up seven. Let's get away from it to see if we can put more points up. And I just, I just think that's a huge mistake right off the bat. And it just, it ate at my gut because I was like, the one thing you can't allow is Patrick Mahomes to walk you off because you know what he'll do? He'll walk you off. He is that good. Yeah, I, I think that's a. That's a great evaluation and summary of what took place. So much of the focus, and I know on your radio show, you, you guys had to discuss this probably ad nauseum, the fact that, that Kyle, uh, in his mind, his words, wanted to go third in overtime, and we all know from the college product you want to go second so you know what you have to do in overtime but i think of far greater importance is what you just illustrated and and kyle shanahan's a phenomenal coach and he's a great offensive mind and, and maybe he got caught up in being so creative he forgot that he has the best back in football who is going to go three four eight six five thirty five and you you just know like all the great ones, he he can pop one at any time. And I, I don't want to be a revisionist here, but I would have loved to have seen half of those snaps where he had touches. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. I am 100% with you. And, you know, um, you, you know how the analytics and the math, you know, and the statistics have become a dominant force in baseball. And one that's really, like, I always – I always joke around, but I'm not really joking around. Analytics pisses me off. Um, you know, I always say I've never seen math make one tackle or math block one dude. And, you know, when you're calling a game, Drew, and you have a lot more experience at this than I do, but I always say when you're calling a game, you do all this preparation, you do all this study, you do all this to, to make sure that, you know, you know everything and you're ready for this broadcast. You can't call the game that you study. You have to call the game that's in front of you. And the same thing goes from a playing and a coaching standpoint. You can't lean on the analytics based upon what they told you before the game. You've got to be able to take that stuff, parse it out, and then play the game that's in front of you. And as I'm watching that thing, you know, unfold in overtime, I'm thinking, Man, I do not want to give Patrick Mahomes the ball with an opportunity to walk us off where it's four-down territory regardless of where you get the ball. You could start on your own two. It's four-down territory. 
that is a that's an incredibly tough thing to defend when you have that guy who has all the confidence in the world because he's done it so many times. He's come back from double you know double digit deficits more than any other quarterback in history. He's the only guy I believe that has a winning record. He's like eighty percent when they're down by double digits in the second half. The only other guy to even be close to that is Tom Brady, and he's under five hundred. Yeah, he's ten eleven. Yeah, so it just doesn't happen very often, and um, unless you're Patrick Mahomes and you're the Kansas City Chiefs, so you know I, I just think you have to. And I always, I always joke around like on, you know, fourth down and one. I hear it on television all the time. Fourth down and two, for instance. Hey man, the analytics they go for it here. Well, what if you haven't blocked their three technique all day long? And fourth down and two, there's a little bit more pucker factor in fourth and two than there is third and two. You know, I mean, like I, I, me personally as a player, I take those things into consideration because I know how tough it is to be you know, third down and 12 from your own four-yard line and know if I get a holding call in the end zone, it's, you know, it's a safety and, and you know, we're, the game's over because we're going to have to pump back to them. So th- there's a different factor there for me that, that math just doesn't take into account. No, I love the analogy. And you and I have talked about this before. There is there is definitely a place for analytics. And, and I'll speak in baseball terms right now. You know this, Stink, that you can have two guys that have identical um, stats from an analytical standpoint. Their OPS plus, their whatever, you know, their WOBA, all identical. And if you're the manager... You know that if the game's on the line in the ninth inning tonight, you have a preference as to who would hit. And that's that's the human factor that you have. That's why there's a guy who gets to call the shots, whether you call him a head coach in football or basketball or a manager in baseball. And that's where, for me, you have to have a feel and the human condition comes in. Yes, 100%. And that, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I've, I've watched this kind of transpire. There are a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of college coaches that are infiltrating in the NFL right now. And I think a lot of it is the NIL stuff and not being able to deal with that, not being able to coach your players. It becomes more about recruiting and pampering and all those things. And so I've heard a lot of complaints from college coaches that want to get into the NFL because they want to coach again. It's not about babysitting and pampering and making sure that little Johnny's feelings aren't hurt because they'll transfer if they are and all that kind of stuff. And that's the college football versus professional football world. And in the professional baseball ranks, there are a lot of professional baseball guys that are trying to infiltrate into college because it's a little bit more pure baseball than it is in, in pro baseball. So it's really interesting how those two kind of, how those two kind of sports have, um, kind of, not mirrored each other, but almost opposite, you know, have gone opposite uh, directions in that, in that regard. Yeah. I, I love specifically the game. Well, you know how much I love college baseball, but I, I, I love college football, love, love college football. But right now, I I couldn't imagine being in it. Gary Barnett's going to come on the show here coming up uh, in the coming days. And I was talking to him recently 
And it, it, could you imagine you got to re-recruit guys? You're not, you're right. You're, you're coaching almost becomes secondary because, oh, Mark Schlereth had a great year and now, you know, he, we got to, we got to pay him more money. Otherwise he's getting in the portal and he's going to big time you down the road. Right. Yeah. It, that part to me is absolutely insane. And the other thing that, that I, I guess, it just hurts me as a competitor and, and just hurts me as a, a guy in general um, is that, you know, when the going gets tough and it's going to, you're going to have hard times. There's going to be injuries. They're going to recruit a kid that comes in and maybe it's better than you. Um, and maybe you're forced to switch positions and all those things that happen to you over the course of time, it just makes it easy to walk away instead of, you know, gird your loins and just say, screw that, man. I am going to, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight for my job. I'm going to fight for my, uh, right to play. I'm going to fight for time. I'm going to, like, I'm going to fight for at bats. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. And, you know, we're creating a generation of athletes that, that are basically, you know, when the going gets tough, I pack up my bags and jump in the transfer portal. And yeah. I, I hate that. I hate that for, I hate that for college athletics. I really do. I, I will tell you this, Drew. I wouldn't have played as long as I played in the NFL had I not had injury issues and got bounced off the defensive side of the ball because I was a defensive player for the majority of my college career. And I had so many injuries, I actually retired as a junior in college and I switched back over to the offensive side of the ball. And it helped me immensely, those lessons, those valuable lessons, but also having played defense for all those years, it really helped me when I got onto the offensive side of the ball, especially professional football, because I understood football globally way better than most people understood football. Yeah. And it was a benefit to me later in life. Think, think about everything we teach, whether it is as, as a parent or specifically as a coach, about handling adversity, dealing with adversity, competing, competing your ass off because it translates beyond the field or the court or the ice. It translates to life, right? I don't, I don't care what kind of blue blood you are. There's going to be adversity and you need to fight. You need to counterpunch. You need to compete. And that unfortunately for many kids is not what is transpiring now. The, the minute things get a little dicey, they're in the portal. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I want to ask you, do you, when you watch, when, whether you're in the Fox booth or whether you're on your couch, like a few days ago, watching the Super Bowl, do you watch the O-line? I mean, I, I remember from, as a defensive guy, that it was always the guards are going to, most of the time, the guards are going to take you to the football and you were a great guard. Is that where it starts for your stink, or you still kind of have to morph into, I got to see where the ball is? Yeah, you know what? I'm probably morphing a little bit more into kind of the global aspect of of football. You know, I'm trying to see, I always try to see safety, safety rotation. You know, I always try to look before the snap, um, formationally what they're in, personnel groupings what they're in. Um, and then the leverage of DBs oftentimes will tell you if it's man or if it's zone based upon where their eyes are, the leverage with which they're playing inside, outside, all that kind of stuff. So you try to see all that stuff as much as you can pre-snap. Um, but you know, I always, I always tell people that as a, as a former player, you kind of view the game through a straw hole. 
So, you know, instantly you kind of myopic, your vision becomes very myopic on the position that you play. So my natural tendency is boom, right to the line of scrimmage. Um, and so, you know, I have to force myself to have open up my aperture and have a little bit more global perspective on the game. So I really try to do that pre-snap, um, you know, a lot because I know once it snaps, then I've got to essentially to call a game. You got to follow the ball at that point. So, you know, that's kind of what I look at. I try to kind of focus my eyes on what is the quarterback looking at? Where is, you know, where is it? And then if you've got all that information pre-snap, you can discern, you know, what the coverage was, where he was supposed to go with the ball, what he was trying to do, um, and all those types of things. Stake, you played, you know, guard forever in the NFL, and we are in a period of time, and understandably so, because of what we've learned about head trauma, that in the open field, the NFL has really tried to do its best to take the head, the helmet, the head out of the game. There are less violent collisions. However, where you made a living in the trenches, can you articulate, is it the same still in from an interior alignment standpoint when you're trying to block a, you know, a zero tech or, or whatever? Um, because we can't really see that. But we can see a, a safety coming up and hitting a receiver across the middle, and, and that's kind of that's the one that, that's an obvious flag. What, what's it like in the interior line in 2023 as opposed to you know 25 years ago? Yeah, that, not much has changed in that regard, and it's something that you know the league has reached out to me um, on several different occasions. I've actually talked. To Roger Goodell, I talked to Roger Goodell on the sideline during the Detroit game, and he brought this up to me again. And I've talked to the league, and I've talked to Roger about it now multiple times. What can we do on the line of scrimmage to take the helmet out of the game? That's like nothing. Um, yeah, so you're always there's always going to be that collision, that helmet to helmet at you know collision that happens on essentially every play for offensive and defensive linemen. Now. Obviously, it's not from, you know, 20 yards or 10 yards at full sprint and full speed, but there is a, a cumulative damage done from the constant hitting, you know, 65 plays. You're going to have 65, you know, times where you're going to be essentially helmet to helmet coming off the ball, at least in the running game, maybe not as much in the pass game. So, um, but there's not a whole lot you can do to take that out of the game. And so, you know, I mean, ultimately, um, ultimately, my my conversation with with Roger Gazelle is like you're not going to take that out of the game, and if you try to take that out of the game, it's just going to, you know, it's just going to be really hard to stomach what we're what kind of product we're putting out there. They're doing the best they can, and ultimately, to me, a lot of a lot of the issue comes post football. Um, you know, there's so many studies that have been that have been done that really don't, in my mind, that really don't address a lot of the situations. Like, obviously, you know, the head trauma is serious and it's something we have to look at. But what about your post your post career care? And I think about you know, anytime that you retire from something or it gets taken away from you, there's going to be trauma in your life. There's going to be, you know, change in your life. It comes with depression. Every one of us at some point is going to face 
our work mortality from the standpoint of we're going to get fired, pink slipped, outsourced, whatever the case is, it's going to happen. And if your whole identity is tied up into what you do for a living, there's going to be bouts of depression. How does that affect, if you have a bout of depression, how does that work with the brain chemistry that you have from having, you know, some source of CTE or plaque buildup in your brain? How does exercise affect that? How does having a passion or a purpose outside of football affect that? How does, how does, you know, alcohol affect that? How do, how do, uh, you know, addiction to opiates affect that? All those things that really haven't been studied, you know, it's just the thing that always pisses me off. It's, hey, you know, football equals head trauma equals, you know, freaking out and, and you know, and, and having some tragic thing, event happen in your life. And I just, I'm not a believer in that. I believe that you have enough plasticity in your brain. You have enough connectivity in your brain. If you live a healthy lifestyle and you exercise and you have another purpose that you can circumvent and overcome some of those issues. And it always pisses me off that we don't do enough to study that and to have some post-career air as opposed to, you know, hey, let's just try to take contact out of the game. I, like that, that to me, is, you can't do that. So you've got to look afterwards and, and help guys afterwards to me as much as you can. Yeah, that was well said. When you watch a game, as a guy that's analyzed him and done it exceptionally well for a number of years, uh, for instance, are you listening to Tony Romo perhaps different than other people and, and how he analyzes a game? Do you scrutinize your brethren, if you will? Yeah, I know. I, it's not so much scrutinize. I listen to what I can be better at. So you mentioned Tony Romo. I love, you know, I mean, uh, besides, <laughs> you know, besides that stuff, um, I really listen to Tony at the end of each half because I think that he's as good as there is in our business at giving you the scenarios at the two-minute drives, at what you're thinking at the quarterback's position because he's done it for so long. He did it so many times. And for me, I always look at that as probably the the um, the thing I need the most work on because as a player, I didn't care. Give me the freaking play. Let me get my stance and go do it. Like I wasn't concerned about that stuff. You know, that wasn't my that wasn't quote unquote my job. And so now it, 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 there's more work for me to kind of understand what the situation is. And I always think Tony does a really good job, as good as good as anybody in our business, at you know explaining that stuff at the end of the half, the end of the game, and that's really where I I really dig in and listen to him. Um, I love I love listening to Aikman. I think Aikman does a great job, um, you know, not only with the analysis but also just some of the history stuff of the game and kind of the the insight into the game. Those are things, because I always study the game so much that sometimes, you know, I look at myself and I'm critical on my own, this, this, the work I do, I'm critical of it because oftentimes I'm like, wow, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more storyline stuff that I could be a lot better at, but it's not what interests me as much as just the game in general. And so, you know, you always kind of look critically at yourself and say, man, I got to be better at this, this, and this. So I listen to those guys 
not to be critical or not to, um, oh, man, I'm so much better than that guy. I listen to them, see what I can learn from them, and if there's something, frankly, that I can steal from them. Yeah. I, I think quarterbacks have a, a naturally a unique perspective because uh, I'll, I'll steal a, a word you used earlier. They have to have a global view of a play as opposed to, you, you know, you're the right guard, left guard. You know, I, I'm, I, I got to get the Mike linebacker here. And, and so I, one of the things that Tony did for me so well, especially initially stink was by formation, because he had just come off the field, about 85% of the time, he would give a pre-snap read and say, hey, this is what's coming here. And I, it, it was brilliant. It was almost groundbreaking. I don't, he's gotten away from that a little bit. And I don't know as, as to why. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know either. There was, there was a few games where he was calling everything. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, I think that as, as we get further and further away, I think sometimes teams are less and less inclined to, to, you know, really give you the inside details. I've got a couple of coaches where I'll sit down with the coach and go, Hey man, third down, this is what we're going to do. Um, you know, we're going to play this coverage. We're going to try to force the ball over here, watch our double teams over here. We're going to blitz this guy. You know, no one's giving you everything. Some, some people keep everything really close to the vest. Um, and I'm sure Tony had a couple of relationships with a couple of backup quarterbacks or a couple of backup, a couple of quarterbacks that basically just shared the game plan with him and said, Hey, no, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. If we get to this formation, we're running this. Like, I'm sure there's some connections that he had early in right. broadcasting that played out that way. And you know, you talk to guys who, like a pitcher who told you, Hey man, I own this guy. Watch. I'm going to go inside twice and then I'm going to get him with a slider down the way. And, you know, and, and he will, he'll bite that cheese every time they've got the game plan. And so you can, you can recite that on television and make yourself look like a genius. You know, um, as a matter of fact, I, I did a San Francisco game and, and this is great. You know, God bless Mike Shanahan. So Mike calls me up and he's like, Hey man, I'm in town. You know, we're, we're with the grandkids. And I'm like, oh, great. Well, we're staying right down the street at the, you know, the Four Seasons. And he goes, hey, when can we get together on Saturday? And I'm like, oh, shoot, you know, Mike, I'm done meetings about like 8 o'clock or so. And he goes, oh, I got something. I'm I'm busy till about 1030. He goes, but I'm coming to the hotel at 1030. I'm like, all right. So it's like normally I'm asleep on Saturday night, right? But I right. stayed up and wait for Mike. And Mike comes in and he's got the team meeting. He got the, I probably shouldn't be telling you this, but I'm yeah. telling it to you anyway. He's got the team meeting that they just had. He's like, okay, here's the, here's the first 15 plays. <laughs> so I walk into the game with the first 15 plays. I know they're going to do a throwback. They're, they're going to do a, a throwback. You know, they pitch it. Quarterback rolls out the backside. The running back stops and throws it back to him. And I'm just like, Hey, you really got to watch the trick play here. You know, you never know when the throwback or something is coming. And sure enough, here it goes, right? I'm like, genius. I might admit, I already knew it. Like, I knew it was going to happen. Um, so, you know, I'm sure some of that went down with some of the quarterbacks, buddies, but you get away from the game a little bit and you lose some of those relationships. Guys retire and, um, and now you don't have the same info that you did initially. 
Yeah. You know what? I, and I, and I really respect Romo. Um, the, the one, and you see now I have my play by play hat on how I watch a game. And the one thing at the conclusion of, of the Super Bowl, which, you know, turned into a, you know, great game and, and you have this dramatic finish, the one thing he needed to, for me, it, he it's like broadcasting one on one. He needed to lay out there. Let Nance have the you know the line, if you will. You know, I, I think he said jackpot. And then it's then it's a a booth layout. You know this, Stink. You've done a million games. It's a booth layout. Let the pictures and the audio tell the story for 30, 40 seconds, and then there's going to be plenty of time for you to give your summary of what took place and your, you, you know, deification, if you will, again, of Patrick, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think though, one of the things that has made that broadcast incredibly successful, and you know, and they've come under fire a little bit to a degree here recently, but I think one of the things that's made that broadcast so incredibly successful is Jim Nance. Because, there had, you know, and, and you fall into this and, and you understand it. There is, you know, a rhythm to a broadcast. And oftentimes, you know, the play-by-play wants to get their stuff in, you know, set up the play, and then you've got a window or whatever. And Jim Nance has done such an unbelievable job of laying out and cleaning up. If Tony rolls through the snap and rolls through like what is traditionally the play-by-play guys area. And I've seen Jim just pick it up like, uh, that was third down and six, seven-yard completion, first down. And then Tony continues to ramble on, and he didn't get to set up anything. And I think there's an unselfishness. And this is what makes great teams, Drew. This is what makes championship teams. There is an unselfishness. There is a willingness to let others shine. It's amazing what you can accomplish when nobody truly cares who gets the credit. And that to me is, is the formula for championship organizations, a championship broadcast, a championship marriage, you know, whatever the case may be, that's really what it is. And I, I really think that for me, Jim Nance um, and the way he operates allows that broadcast to shine. Yeah, he he's he's a legend in in our business for a variety of reasons. One of them that you just uh, articulated, and and for me also his versatility. And I know you love you know many different sports, and and Jim Nance is one of those guys. I mean, he could be doing checkers tomorrow, you know, Wimbledon next week, the NFL, the NBA, the Masters, all the things that he's done and many that he has not done. And he is going to give you, you know, a, a top not, it's not about him. It's never been about him. And, um, it's why he is, you know, a legendary figure. Some changes at Fox coming up where you reside, uh, Tom Brady's coming in for a reported, you know, whatever, good, good for Tom Brady. He's, you know, he's, he's one of one, right? Uh, Greg Olson's done a great job. It, apparently, he's going to move back a notch. I know this is where you work, so I, I, I don't want to put you in a in, in a difficult spot. I, I will start with a statement, and and I'll let you expound on it. I actually, as, as good as Greg Olson is, I think Tom Brady, with his intelligence, his work ethic, and 
his charisma, I think in time is going to do really, really well. That's just, you know, from, I don't know Tom Brady. I know him like everybody else from afar. Um, but that, that's kind of my take, even though this is, you know, uncharted territory for him. Yeah. I will tell you having, I don't know, I don't know him well either, but having spent some time with him, um, Having talked to him, having done several of his games, having had conversations with him, um, you know, both on Zoom and face to face, um, he is, he is far more subdued in front of a podium and far more reserved in front of a podium as a starting quarterback than he is in a meeting. Um, and I have a feeling that you're going to get the unvarnished Tom Brady, the 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 guy's guy, because you talk to anybody he's played with, um, he's the guy's guy, and he loves to mix it up and he loves to have a good time, and um, and I think you'll see some of that. You mentioned the work ethic, and I talked to Bruce Arians about that, and he goes, dude, the work ethic is legendary. And he'll take that to the booth, and he'll be just fine. Yeah, I, you know what? He's Tom Brady, man. He is NFL royalty. Um, he's always been really good to me, and um, and I find him funny and entertaining. And you know, I've many many times I've clipped him grief, and um, and he comes right back over the top. So you know, he's a really good. As a matter of fact, the very first time I ever met, very one of the first games I I was doing my first year. It was after Jimmy Garoppolo got traded to San Francisco. And Jimmy Garoppolo, I'd never met him. He walked into our production meeting, and I said, quick, before we even shook hands and introduced ourselves, I go, quick, handsome off, you, Brady, who wins? And he just looked at me and goes, me, of course. And I'm, okay, all right, great, right? So then the first time I met with Brady, I go, okay, you know, I had this conversation with Jimmy Garoppolo. He chose himself. I said, handsome off, you or Garoppolo, who wins? And Tom was like, I'm not there. Come on, I'm not answering that question. You know, I'm not, you know, so we go all the way through this production meeting. I go, okay, last question. You, Garoppolo, handsome up, who wins? And he just looks at me and then he goes, then he, you know, threw some expletive out there, out there and goes, of course I win that, you know, and he's just like, he's fun that way. He's a, he's a good dude. Um, and like you said, just legendary NFL and it's a great perspective and, like you said, I, I think great. I think Greg Olson has done a tremendous job. Um, and I don't know, you know, he's he's kind of lobbied for keeping the job, or you know, I don't know if, if he wants to move on. I don't know if there's another opening out there. Um, but listen, man, it's you know, it's Tom freaking Brady, and listen, he's a competitor. Greg Olson's a competitor, so he's done a great job. He wants to compete. I don't blame him. Um, you know, I I, I just. You know, I just know I'm down the typing order, so it's not, you know, I don't know where I'll end up, but uh, hopefully somewhere. So <laughs> that's what I'm counting on. But yeah, it's all good, man. I've told this story before with Stink. It's it's one of my favorite stories about him, and it, and it gives you a little insight into um, what kind of dad he was and is. And he has two beautiful daughters and his son, Daniel. And I remember that I, I was still doing the Nuggets back then when 
um, and, and then transitioning to doing both with the, the Nuggets and the Rockies. And so I was on the road a lot, and it's, and it's the winter, and it's also during the Broncos season. And Stink said, hey, if you're going to be gone at some point, you know, and it snows, just let me know, and I'll have Daniel come down and, and uh, shovel the driveway. And so we got back with the Nuggets on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, Still during the NFL season at like four in the morning from some, you know, either they, the Nuggets have played the Lakers, some team on the West Coast, and we get back in the middle of the night. And it had snowed, I don't know, probably, you know, eight, 10 inches overnight. And the Broncos are at home the next day. And I don't know, it's like 8 30, 9 in the morning. And I hear the unmistakable sound of, our driveway being shoveled and I kind of groggily, you know, stagger out of bed and I, and I look out the window and there is Daniel Schlereth and Mark Schlereth shoveling my driveway on a Sunday morning in which later that day, Mark Schlereth is going to be wearing a football helmet and competing for the Denver Broncos. I'm like, what on earth is going on here? Stink must come home from the team hotel early, and he's shoveling my driveway. I'm too embarrassed now to go out there and participate, and I'm just flabbergasted. Anyhow, fast forward, Broncos play that day, Broncos win that day. I go in the locker room after the game, and I go over to my neighbor, and I said, Stink, what what the hell? And he's going, what? I go, what were you doing shoveling my driveway this morning on a game day? And he said, I got to teach that kid a work ethic. He's talking about his, uh, as I said, 10, 11, 12-year-old son, Daniel, who ended up having a phenomenal work ethic and ultimately, as we said, became a first-round pick of the Arizona Diamondbacks. And he's in coaching now, as we we're talking about, at uh, at Western Michigan. But it's one of my favorite Mark Schlereth stories. It gives you a little insight into, into who he is um, beyond the guy you see on TV and listen to on the radio. We'll have part two next week. Um, we'll touch on a... a myriad of subjects as we did this week and uh, i think you'll enjoy it uh stay safe stay well everyone it was a good super bowl we move on from football and transition to baseball spring training is uh basically upon us all right take care everybody talk to you soon